And I'm Jared, and I get to finish up this uh, great series that we launched three weeks ago. We're going to wrap up the series called One Week to Live, taking a look at the last week of Jesus' life. And uh, if you've missed one or both of the first two, please check on the website or the app on the podcast. Uh, the first one was Jesus, as his, Jesus and his critics, and then Jesus and his grateful friends. And today, woohoo, we're going to talk about Jesus and his flaky friends. So are you ready to go for this? Yeah, all right. Here we go. Yeah. So maybe some of you uh, have dealt with disappointment like this. I just want to give you a, the subtitle of the talk today. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Welcome to disappointment. <laughs> Don't stay too long. So here's the deal. This talk is going to be divided into two sections. The first one, we're going to take a look at disappointing friends. And then the, the second time, we're going to leave disappointment. And we're going to find out our way forward from that. So Hey, let's launch in. Here we go. Uh, you know that Jesus was countercultural. Go back 2,000 years into Israel, the primary religious leaders that regular people like us would have associated with were rabbis, the teachers. The rabbis were served by their followers. Jesus served his followers. He said to them, I don't call you servants. I call you my friends. Astounding, upside-down approach that they couldn't just get. They had to experience it today. And unfortunately, some of Jesus' friends were kind of flaky. Jesus had disappointing friends. And so on this last week, he predicted and prepared them for their failure. In fact, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 26 today. If you have a Bible or a device, you might want to open it to Matthew chapter 26. Uh, you have an outline there. Uh, you can take that home with you. If you'd prefer to read through Matthew chapter 26 this afternoon, you can just listen as I read if you care to. But in Matthew chapter 26, Jesus says to them, tonight you're all going to scatter. You're all going to leave me. And of course, our good friend Peter says, not me, no way. And all of his buddies said, I did owe that, you know. And we know the story, don't we? Bravado gave away to fear, and Jesus' prediction was true. So what do we do in our relationships where there's disappointment? You know, loving or just being close to someone sets you up with a significant risk for disappointment. We wouldn't hurt if we didn't care. Relationship brings risks. A grief, if we lose them, betrayal, if they violate us, disappointment, if they leave us. It might be a close friend or a family member or a trusted mentor or a professional colleague or a romantic partner. The human experience of being disappointed with others is the common shared experience. And when this happens, you may feel personally wounded even if what they did, they did to someone and didn't directly affect you. But we have this compassionate ability to draft off of the pain and the offenses of others. And then we can feel, we can feel bad about feeling angry about people who did something that didn't affect us. And then we're confused. Have any of you been there? What do I do with this mess? I think they're wrong. That deserves some judgment. I think I should forgive them. That deserves some compassion. And and only Jesus gives us this beautiful map right through this confusing mess 
as we take a look at this last week. So in our two sections today, first of all, we're going to look at how friends hurt us, and second, we're going to look at what we do when they do that. Think about your relationships. And probably on the dark side, there's three kinds of friends that you've encountered. There, there are those friends who, uh, who just are sort of with you, except they fall asleep at the relationship wheel. <laughs> Disappointment, right? And then there's friends who, who turn against you right when you need them the most and stab you in the back. Betrayal. And then there's friends that just disappear. We call them the evaporators. They just, they just quit on you. And, and we're disappointed and we're disillusioned with that. I think William Blake, a great philosopher of a century or so, past said it very well. You'll love this quote. It's easier to forgive an enemy than to forgive a friend. Yeah. Because it hurts. It hurts. So let's take a look at Jesus last week. We're going to jump into Matthew chapter 26. We're going to start out by the first group of friends, and they're the friends who do what? Say it with me. Yeah, disappoint. Yeah, don't you dare nudge anybody next to you right now. That's entirely unfair. We're going to get to you before we're done. So here we go. We're going to jump right into Jesus' final week. We're going to jump into his closest associates, Peter, James, and John, in an olive grove that is historically called the Garden of Gethsemane. And it says in Matthew 26, 36, Then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane, And he said to them, sit here while I go over there and pray. And then he took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him. So there's 11. Now he's pulling three out. He took them with him, and he began to be sorrowful and troubled. And then he said to them, these three guys, my soul is overwhelmed, and I am at the point of death. Stay here. Keep watch with me. I'm going to pause for a minute. This is shocking for some of you. You've had Jesus walking on water and floating on clouds the whole time. And now you're exposed to Jesus' humanity in his last moments. He says, I am at my weakest point. I am overwhelmed. My soul is being crushed and the life is being crushed out of it. I am nearly dead, he says. His weakest moment, and therefore when he has the least to give. And he says to the 11 guys, can you just sit? And he says to the three guys, can you just stay and watch? And watch means don't watch me pray. It means stay up tonight and don't fall asleep. It's the night watch. Now, I know this is a painful setting, but I had this crazy image. When have you last told a being to sit and stay? Your dog. (laughs) Yeah, it's okay to laugh. I'm trying to be funny here. It's okay. Yeah. Jesus like boils this down to the the dog language. He, He knows he needs them. What might they be successful at tonight? Sit and stay. But you know the rest of the story. We continue and pick it up in verse 40. He said, uh, then he, he uh, returned to his disciples and he found them sleeping. Yeah. Couldn't you keep watch with me for one hour, he asked Peter. 
And then he went a second time and prayed, My father, if it's not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your time, may your will be done. And then he came back again and he found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. And so he left and went away once more and prayed a third time, saying the same thing. Verse 45, and then he returned to the disciples and said to them, are you still sleeping? Hmm. Disappointment. At Jesus' weakest, when he needed his friends' support the most, they checked out. I think it was predicted a few hundred years before by some of the wisdom of the ancient Proverbs when it says in 19.4, wealth attracts many friends, but even the closest friend of the poor person deserts them. We think about wealth and poor in terms of money, right? And that's certainly true. If you win the lottery, uh, you will have never seen me as much as you will next week. I understand how that works. And, you know, if you declare bankruptcy, you're not going to have all your friends and family coming around. But I want you to think of wealth and poor in a much more expansive kind of definition of resource. We bring resources of connections and influence and position and opportunity and fun experiences and money and the person with resource, you are certainly far better than you ever knew until you lose the resource and suddenly things get very quiet, which is exactly what happened at Jesus' point of greatest need. They couldn't even sit and stay. Hmm. I was speaking with a, a newer friend. He and I were talking about the possibility of doing something together. And, and as we started getting a little more serious in a conversation about it, I said to him, you need to know something about me. He said, what's that? I said, I will disappoint you. Uh, I don't think that he thought that was the best way for me to sell myself into this relationship. <laughs> and he said, well, how? How will you disappoint me? And I said, well, uh, I'll disappoint you in my political preferences and leanings. He said, well, well how do you know that? And I said, because I listen to you and you talk about it all the time. And I know what you watch and what you listen to and who, who you read and who your major uh, national leaders are. And I said... I just want you to know that if you get me into a political conversation, you're going to be quite disappointed in where I land politically. I said, I won't disappoint you in keeping my word. I won't disappoint you in how I treat you with respect and others. But if you make me talk about politics, I guarantee I will disappoint you. Now, I'm not going to tell you about where I stand, am I? No, I'm old. I'm not that smart, but I'm old. And I did scroll Facebook last night and some of you were marching, and some of you were buying guns, and everything in between yesterday. So here's the deal with disappointment. It's tricky, isn't it? Because we wish we could just have a warning label like I gave my friend. I love these. Do you remember the first time you saw a warning label on a hairdryer? For some of you, it's the last time you had hair. I know. I know. Here we go. Do not remove this tag. I shouldn't say anything about Anne because she speaks next week, but Anne believes this kind of stuff. <laughs> I'm not even going to go off on the nine pillows we have on our bed. <laughs> Just... They all have tags. 
So, here it is. Do not remove this tag. Warn children of the risk of death by electric shock. Awesome. That's how we greet the grandchildren. Yeah, yeah. Now, on the back side, it lists what this could do to you. You know what's number three. Do not use while bathing. I will not get political about the Second Amendment, but I could support background checks for people buying these that might use them while bathing. Here's the, here's the deal, folks. We can't come up with a warning label about how we might disappoint each other. Because disappointment is particular. Hmm. I may thrill you and I may disappoint you. How can I warn you about that? I think this saying has been very helpful for me. You'll like it. Expectations are disappointments waiting to happen. Yeah. And here's the deal. When you love, you set yourself up vulnerably with expectations. And even the friends of the perfect friend, Jesus, ended up having unmet expectations and ended up disappointing. Friends disappoint. The second thing we find is that there are friends who, say it with me, betray, yeah. <laughs> What's his name? Judas. He's kind of infamous. He earned it. Uh, we don't know why he turned against Jesus for sure. The Bible's not clear. He, he was stealing money, and because he was pilfering, maybe that was a motivation. He may have been politically motivated, wanting Jesus to be the, the, uh, the overthrower of Rome in a political and governmental sense, and disappointed. We don't, we don't know why he betrayed Jesus. We just know that he betrayed. Don't you wish you knew why? We wish that because when we're betrayed, what's our first question? Why? Why did you do that? Why? It's the human nature to say why. I think probably the Holy Spirit in inspiring Scripture on purpose didn't tell us why. Because have you noticed that even when you know why, it doesn't help heal? Betrayal hurts all by itself, regardless of the why. And so we read in the story that verse 20, I'm jumping back to 20, it it says that when evening came, Jesus was reclining at the table with the 12. And while, while they were eating, he said, Truly, I, I tell you, one of you will betray me. And they were all very sad. They began to say to him, Truly, I tell you, uh, uh, you don't mean me, Lord. The next one, they go around the table. You don't mean me, Lord. You don't mean me, Lord. And finally they came to Judas, and he says, You don't mean me, Rabbi. And Jesus answered, Well, you just said so. Jump to verse 47. This is... Maybe two or three or four hours later, now toward the middle of the night. Then Judas, one of the twelve, arrived. With him was a large crowd armed with swords and clubs sent from the high priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had arranged a signal with them. The one I kiss is the man, addressed him. And going at once to Jesus, Judas said, Greetings, Rabbi, and he kissed him. And Jesus replied, do what you came for, friend. Wow. 
Don't test me on this one. I might have said the same words, but it would have been a different tone. How about you? My tone would have been dripping with judgmental sarcasm. Do what you came for, friend. Some friend you are, you two-faced hugger, kisser, friend. We learn something from Jesus. His decision about friendship is unilateral. And even in the face of betrayal, he said, I still have the power to decide who you are to me. So do what you came for, friend. The inspired poet foresaw Jesus and Judas a few hundred years before, back in Psalm 41.9, where it said, even my close friend, someone I trusted, the one who shared my bread, has turned against me. How have you been betrayed? Maybe harassed at school, maybe uh, bullied on social media, maybe slandered by a neighbor, maybe backstabbed by a colleague or a business associate, maybe, maybe betrayed by a romantic relationship. Talking to a friend recently, he told me about a, a failed business situation he was in. The business was thriving and flourishing, and he had a, he had a partner. One day the business was thriving, the next day it was bankrupt. The partner got a $600,000 loan secretly against the business, took the proceeds and all of the cash in the business and disappeared and left the business bankrupt. My friend, telling me the story, went home that night to his family. At dinner, he's talking to his wife and his three teenage kids in their large, lovely dining room in their large, lovely home, and he said, we are broke, $600,000 in debt, the business is gone. And that week, they moved into a tiny two-bedroom apartment where that family, over the next several years, slowly dug themselves out of their financial hole. Betrayal. Betrayed. I think the writer of the Psalms felt what many of us feel and have felt and gives voice to it when he says, it was not an enemy who taunts me. I could bear that. It was not my foes who so arrogantly insulted me. I could have hidden from them. Instead, it was you, my equal, my companion, my close friend. Hmm. Friends can disappoint. Friends can betray. And third, we all know those friends who, well, they, they quit. It says they all deserted and fled. We've all had that happen. You know, one of my occupational hazards uh, as a pastor is that uh, I'm pretty in tune to uh, new people when they come to be a part of this community. And I want you to know that that's really fun for me. That's a joy burst. And on the other hand, I'm pretty familiar with people who leave this community of faith. And I want you to know that that's not fun for me. That's a not joy burst. It's a bummer. 99% of the time. So how do people evaporate from your life? Yeah, you invested in the life of a student, and they, 
They decide they're just going to mess up and not finish the course. You invest in an employee, a friend, or a, a partner, or, and they just, they just move on. And it's like you were erased from their life. And each time, our tendency can be to let our heart grow a little bit harder, and we say, that will never happen to me again. And the community gets smaller, and the opportunity for large God's largeness gets tiny. It says this in verse 31. Then Jesus told them, this very night you'll fall away on account of me. And Peter replied, even if all fall away on account of you, I never will. Truly I tell you, Jesus said, this very night before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. Peter declared, ah, even if I have to die for you, I'll never disown you. And all the other disciples, they said the same. Yeah, we're with Peter. Ditto, ditto, ditto. Several hours later, just before dawn, verse 75. Then Peter remembered the words Jesus had spoken, quote, before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times, end quote. And he went outside and wept bitterly. It hurts. It hurts to be failed, and it hurts to fail. But how did Jesus respond to all this? <laughs> and this is where we're going to start leaving disappointment. Are you ready for that? Ready to turn the corner here? Take a look at Jesus through this whole thing. It is utterly astounding to me. You see, Jesus on Easter morning in one of the gospel accounts, his very first message after his resurrection is to confirm an appointment with his followers. This is crazy. So we already read in Matthew 26 that the night before his betrayal, Jesus set up an appointment with them. And he said, on the other side of this deal, I'm going to go to Galilee and I want to meet you there. Put it in your calendar. We've got a date. After his crucifixion, burial, and resurrection, his first messenger message sent through a messenger was, go tell the disciples, catch this, and Peter, see you soon in Galilee. The appointment was not changed. And I love it that he calls Peter out because Peter did not feel like a friend. He did not feel like a follower. He felt like a failure. Go tell my disciples and Peter. The date in Galilee is still on. That's the redeeming story of Christmas. It's Jesus saying, I come into every life and potentially every relationship, and it is not irredeemable to me. It's Jesus saying in the face Two friends who are certainly going to fail. See you later. And after they failed, see you soon. And then showing up there. Because his definition of who he is in the relationship is unilateral. It is not reciprocal and it is not reactive. I call you friends. Wow. Hmm. Jesus is quite a friend. When Ann and I uh, left our jobs uh, 14 years ago in L.A., <laughs> we 
we, uh, we kind of felt like a bunch of our friends quit on us. Uh, in fact, in that uh, particular professional setting, we had hundreds of people that we would, we would have considered friends, first name basis. And in the first six months after leaving our work, three of them reached out to us in some form of communication and initiating. It felt like our friends had quit on us. Yeah. Would we have the grace to say with Jesus, see you later, and actually keep the door of our hearts open to the possibility that sometime later we would re-engage? The last couple of months have been really interesting for us. Several of those long, silent friends have reached out to us and given us invitations to speak and to train leaders in Singapore and Los Angeles and Las Vegas and Phoenix and L.A. and Honolulu. Any of you want to go? Yeah. You cannot go to Las Vegas, Steve. You cannot. Yeah. Now, we, we've turned those invitations down because we've chosen to commit our life in different ways in our time allocation. But I want you to know it really felt good to have people re-engage. Now, I think 14 years is a long time. But I think it was kind of cool for Ann and me to, to see that in our hearts, we could say, see you later, and make room for the possibility that maybe there would, in fact, be a later. Because quitting happens. Again, the, the, the ancient wisdom of the Proverbs says it, says it so well. And it's almost there. It's just, just, the poor are shunned by all their relatives. How much more do their friends avoid them? Though the poor pursue them with pleading, they're, they're nowhere to be found. Sometimes people just disappoint us. Maybe you'll resonate with what this person said. It said, sometimes when I think I know people, they disappoint me in ways I never thought they could. Yeah. Well, Jesus went to the cross. That was his response. He, he went to the cross and, and gave his life for flaky friends and made the way to come back to re-engage in the relationship. What he did was he found another better way forward that allowed for the possibility of a restored and a renewed relationship. So let's turn our attention as we wrap toward our close here with five things that I have found helpful for me and asking this question of how can I move forward in a way that helps me not get bitter? I don't want to get bitter about this thing. Five ways to move forward. Here's question number one. Do you fully understand the situation? Yeah. You know, we are designed as humans to have some tendencies that really cause us to be unfair with others against ourselves. One of those tendencies is called the fundamental attribution error. It means that typically when someone fails us, we attribute it to their bad character rather than their situation. But when we mess up, we attribute it to our bad situation instead of our good character. Yeah. And what this question does is it causes us to evoke some empathy and compassion and to ask the question, if I were in their shoes, I, I, wonder, I wonder 
what was going on for them. I wonder, maybe she was under really some horrible stress. Maybe that chronic physical condition he has was really acting up and giving him grief and pain. Sometimes, sometimes we can give the benefit of the doubt when we really understand the situation. The second good question is related to that. It brings us to a point of compassion or, or empathy. I mean, they made a terrible mistake. I mean, they just, you know, really messed you up. But, but is there still room for empathy? Can you step into their shoes? Can you imagine a time that you've let others down and you hope that they would treat that as an anomaly and not the big definition about who you are? You remember times that you've done something you were ashamed of and you wish that you could go back and, and do over. Don't you hope that people are willing to, in grace, kind of erase that and not make that the new definition about your lousy character? Hmm. How about number three? How can you best convey your feelings? Jesus was such a master at this in the story that we read today. And for us, it's important for us to be thoughtful about what we're going to say so we don't end up saying some of those, well, stupid things that we wish that we could collect back later. Not allowing ourselves to get roped into that immediate anger, uh, defensive response that ends up with those I statements, but to rather focus on their specific behavior and, and the actual results that happen for us. Using those I statements like, I felt betrayed and angry and and scared when you ran up another credit card to the max. And, 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 and that, what really ticks me is you didn't tell me, and I'm afraid that that's going to happen again. Specific behavior, specific results. Versus, you know, what I can certainly do. You're an irresponsible jerk with money. Don't you get it? You'll never, yeah, you know how that goes. Once we start with the you instead of the I. How about the fourth question? Can you see the big picture? Going forward, think back about this relationship. Does it all have to be negated? Is it possible that this momentary experience that you've just had could have been the anomaly? Is it possible as you think about moving forward, you think about where you would like the relationship to be next week, next month, next year, over time? Is it possible that this thing that in this moment that feels so salient to the relationship and the massive tornado might over time diminish in the larger schemes of things? How could Jesus possibly look at the face of failure and say, see you soon? He went to a cross knowing that we humans were always going to fail, God and others. And he went to the cross to make the way for us to be forgiven, and for us to be successful by the power of his spirit. He kept the larger picture in mind when he said, I call you friends. And the fifth and final question is not only the most important in the list, but it's more important than all four of the other ones together. Notice it with me. How will you forgive and move on? Forgiveness means letting go of anger and letting go of judgment. It's it asks the question, what do I really want for this relationship to, to look like long-term? And, and ultimately, here's the deal, ultimately, you have the power to make this choice. 
to forgive and to move on. The Apostle Paul says it so powerfully and beautifully. He just packs these two massive ideas together, the problem and the solution. He says this in Ephesians 4, get rid of, and he gives us six things, get rid of all bitterness and rage and anger and brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Wow, what a list. Yeah, just take two of them, bitterness and anger. How can I not be bitter when I have been so wronged and betrayed? And I know that if I hold on to this bitterness, that it's, it has a life of its own, it will grow down roots so deeply that it will begin to crowd out the positive life that God has for me until I become a bitter old man. Or the anger, which is this gift of a human emotion that rises in the response to pain or fear, which is there to serve us. But if I nurture that anger so that it is a state rather than an emotion, I become an angry old woman. How can I possibly move beyond bitterness and anger? And Paul gives us precisely what to do. This is the path out. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ, God forgave you. The first four questions are all about compassion. Be kind and compassionate and forgive each other. If the period would have landed at forgive, I would leave frustrated. Because the truth is, I'm not that good of a forgiver. Don't any of you nod right now. I would be unkind. <laughs> what makes it possible for us to be successful in the face of disappointment and betrayal and friends that just leave is the possibility of extending the grace that has been given to us. Be kind and compassionate, forgiving one another, just as, and here, here is the power punch, just as God in Christ has forgiven you. Hmm. After a long shift at the fire department, Matt Swatzel fell asleep while driving and crashed into another vehicle, taking the life of a pregnant mother named June Fitzgerald and injuring her 19-month-old daughter. Fitzgerald's husband asked for Matt, the driver's reduced sentence, and he began meeting with him for coffee and for conversation. Now, many years later, the two remain close friends. He says, quote, you just forgive as you've been forgiven. The story of Jesus last week is a story that gives us hope that no one is unredeemable, that relationships have the possibility of being restored. The guys like Peter who denied and lied and ran away may be the first ones called out on a Savior forgiver's lips on an Easter message. Tell the disciples and Peter, see you soon. You just forgive as you've been forgiven. Patty Kavanaugh said that she never thought she could reconnect with her mother who had been for years her abuser during their adult life. 
However, her mom had several debilitating strokes, was in a condition where she couldn't communicate or care for herself. Patty began sitting by her mother's bedside to read to her. And over time, Patty says that the hate that she had for her mother dissipated into forgiveness and love. You'll probably recognize the authors of these quotes. Resentment is like drinking poison, then hoping it will kill your enemies. Nelson Mandela. If we really want to learn love, we must learn to forgive. Mother Teresa. To forgive is to set a prisoner free and to discover that the prisoner was you. Professor Lewis Smedes. Forgiveness is not an occasional act. It is a constant attitude. Martin Luther King. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ has forgiven you, the Apostle Paul. As we approach Easter this week, as we prepare for the best day ever, remember that it was the week for Jesus to experience his worst times ever. And you may have your own opportunities this week, and I encourage you to start today as we begin to conclude this time together to reach out to him for forgiveness. We have all failed. Peter is our name. Be forgiven. And in this Passion Week, would you reach out to others with forgiveness? As you extend that forgiveness, you may even extend an invitation to be a part of our services next weekend. They will experience some of God's grace through you because this is true. Notice it with me. The more grace you receive from God, the more grace you have to give others. Amen. We're going to pray together. We're going to sing a song together. And that song includes... (laughs) includes these wonderful phrases. It says, we bring our expectations. Folks, Jesus is the right one to bring expectations toward. We bring our expectations. The next line, our hope is anchored in your name, the name of Jesus. Our hope is anchored where? In your name, the name of Jesus. I'm going to ask you to say those phrases. Repeat them afterward, would you? Loudly and boldly. I'm going to give you the phrase, and then we'll say it together. Our hope is anchored in your name. Together, our hope is anchored in your name, the name of Jesus. The name of Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the gift of Jesus. Jesus, thank you for coming and for not only living as a perfect human to be a role model, but for coming as the living Son of God to live and die in our place and to rise in glory to give forgiveness and the life of your spirit to all of us so that we, in fact, are not only called friends, but as we sang earlier, sons and daughters. Forgive us today our sins as we forgive those who have trespassed 
against us. Fill us with your spirit and make us distributors of grace and forgiveness this week. In Jesus' name, would you say together with me? Amen.